All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians 2, the passage that Troy just read. We'll be going through that passage this morning. My name's Andrew. I go to North Campus here, and it's good to be with you. So before we dive in, I want to go ahead and pray for us. So would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. Um, I'm reminded of the passage that says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. And so I pray this morning that we would look into your perfect word and it would revive our souls. We pray that you would give us insight and into what it means and help us to know how to apply it to our lives. We thank you for this time we have this morning to look into your word. Many of us are coming in with lots of things on our minds, so I pray that you would Calm us down and give us insight and understanding. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the worst books that I've ever read is called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. That's the name of it, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, and we, I was involved in a book club with the young adults for a while. We picked a book each month. And this book, I don't know why we picked it, but it was terrible. Um, I tried to get through it three different times, and it just did not work. It was not working. So the idea was it was a combination of the classic Pride and Prejudice and then zombies. And so Mr. Darcy and the Bennets were, you know, doing their dances, and then they were fighting zombies. So Mr. Darcy was in love, and then at, by night he was a zombie hunter. And so this just did not work. I don't even know if we had an actual discussion about this book. Um, but zombies are really a uh, thing now. About the past 10 years, there's been all kinds of movies about zombies, all kinds of books written about them. The Walking Dead is a popular TV show. World War Z uh, was a, uh, a book and then uh, a movie. Well, those zombies were very fast, so those kind of freaked me out, um, but they were, they were intense. So anyway, why do I talk about zombies at the beginning of the sermon? Well, zombies, if you don't know, are uh, fictional. They're alive, but they're dead. They're the walking dead. They have a disease that they can't get out of, and they're walking around spreading this d disease and decay. One author said, we are worse than dead, we are the living dead, running from God's grace and spreading death wherever we go. And I think a zombie is a good picture of where we're at spiritually before Christ. And so we'll see that today in our passage. We know that God has a solution to uh, spiritually dead zombies, and that is Christ, a new heart he gives us. So we're in the book of Ephesians, right? And we're going through, and the sermon series is all of Christ for all of life. So we're learning about what it means to have our identity in Christ and for all of life. So how to live it out practically. So if you have uh, your Bibles, um, we're looking at Ephesians 2. This is one of my favorite passages, so it's fun to get to preach on it. The main point I think of this passage is Paul is saying, remember, God has made you alive in Christ. That's the main point. And I get that because it's interesting in the Greek, 
in the original language the Bible was written in, this passage is one sentence. So this is a long sentence. But it only has one main verb, and that is made alive. And so I think that's the point. So we'll focus in on that this morning. So if you have your journal, anybody have a journal, scripture journal? Oh yeah, I see some people holding it up. Great. Uh, If you don't have it, that's no problem. We'll be going just straight through the text so you can follow along. But if you do have it, turn to verse uh, 2, 5, and put a box around made us alive. Put a box around made us alive. A thick box, because that's the main point of the passage. So verses 1 through 3 are kind of a backdrop, then made alive, and then the rest is kind of explaining what it means to be made alive. So the outline, I have three points basically today. The first is, and if you want to, you can write this in your journal next to verse 1. We were spiritually dead. Number one, we were spiritually dead. That's what we were before Christ. And number two, you can write this next to verse 4. But God made us alive in Christ. But God made us alive in Christ. This is his action. This is what he's done for us. And then next to verse 8, right now, we walk in good works. Now, we walk in good works. This is what we do now. So let's look at the first truth real quick. We were spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead. And I'm going to read the verses again for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, The Spirit is now work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so the first thing we see is this phrase, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked. So this is talking about the status, right? The circumstance of one's life, the identity And what is it? It says you were dead. You were dead. So this phrase means you are spiritually dead. You're lifeless. You're powerless to respond to God. You're dead towards matters relating to God. In other words, you had no relationship with God. And it gives us the reason, too, why you walked in your trespasses and sins. So it's using this word walked. And walked means This is your lifestyle. This is what you do day to day. Trespasses and sins. So trespasses is breaking God's laws. So if God has something to say and you don't do it, that's a trespass. And sins is anything that you do to offend God. Maybe it's in your uh, thought, in your words, or your deeds. So anything to offend God. So this phrase is really a comprehensive phrase to describe uh, the spiritually dead. So Paul's saying, you had no relationship with God. You were living a lifestyle of breaking his commands and offending him. And then if you look at verses 2 and 3, it talks about three different influences on the spiritually dead. And if you've ever heard of the phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, anybody heard that phrase before, the world, the flesh, and the devil? We see all these three here in this passage. So the world is the outer evil, the flesh, inner evil, um, and, and the devil is, I guess, supernatural evil. So the world, there's the phrase there, following the course of the world. 
And this word following means not only just to do an action, but also to live under the control. So we're living under the control of the world or under the control of the devil. And the world is a fallen society, fallen culture, evil cultural influences that are against God. So we also see the flesh, and that's the inner evil. And the phrase is, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. So that's living out our lusts, our evil passions and desires in body and in mind. So in what we do and in what we think. And the third influence is the devil. So that's the supernatural evil. Following the prince of the power of the air. So that's the phrase. So this is Satan, the evil one. And I just asked the question when I was studying, why use this phrase, the prince of the power of the air? It's an interesting phrase. And I think it's because it describes this supernatural realm, this domain where the devil is, uh, has influence and power and, and control. And so the word air, you think of an unseen force. You can, it's there, but you can't see it. It's like the wind. So this is the domain where the devil has control. Ephesians 6 says that his domain is over cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. So we see that people are under the influence of uh, the control of Satan and evil powers. And I think the Ephesians would be very aware of this, that people all around them in that day practiced magic, magical powers. They worshiped Greek and Roman uh, deities and gods, so they would understand this. And so those are those three powerful influences. But the passage goes a little further if you look here. People are not just sinful because of their influences or sinful because of their actions, but they're actually sinful in their very nature. So look at the phrase. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so this is describing the result or the consequence or the outcome of this lifestyle of living in this world like this. And the phrase is, by nature, children of wrath. So what does that mean, children of wrath by nature? Well, by nature means our natural condition at birth. Um, children means a people or a group, um, like children of a family. And wrath is God's strong, strong indignation, righteous anger directed at wrongdoing. So the definition of the wrath of God is that he intensely hates all sin and that he is poised to, to judge that sin because he intensely hates it, because he's just. He hates all sin. So our human condition by birth is that we are an offspring of people under God's wrath. And it also says, like the rest of mankind. And this is a sobering phrase. All of mankind, all people, have this condition apart from Christ. So Paul had this condition apart from Christ. The Ephesians had this condition apart from Christ, and all the world has this condition in their natural state apart from Christ. So I think verse 3 is pretty shocking if you think about it. Uh, what does this mean? Well, can, you, can you believe it? We're under, all humanity is under God's wrath from birth. That's pretty intense if you really think about it. And, it, and if we pause it and, and, and let it kind of sink in, I don't think this is a very uh, popular phrase. 
these days for a few reasons. We don't think that we're that bad, do we? We think that we're, you know, we, we have some good works and, and, and maybe some bad ones, but they, you know, the good works are way outweigh the bad works. And so uh, in our gut, we kind of think, well, that's very unfair to be under God's wrath when we're born. And another thing I thought of was we don't like the idea of just the people around us that we love, that we care for, the non-believing uh, co-workers, the non-believing family members as under God's wrath if they don't believe in Christ. So in the gut level, we think that's really judgmental, right? And I think just too in English, it's just not a, po- a, a positive idea at all. It's not positive wrath. So when we think of wrath, usually it's, we think of this as a dictator, right? That's uncontrollable, he, um, unreasoned, kind of crazy, bad, evil that he's doing, a tyrant that he's doing against people. They may deserve it, they may not. He's wrathful in his rule. So in the gut level, we might think, well, that's just so harsh, right? But I think instead of looking at uh, how we may respond in our gut or, or how our culture defines it, we really do need to look at the Bible and kind of redefine that idea. When we do look at the Bible, we learn that God takes sin very seriously. There's 580 times at least in the Old Testament where it talks about God's wrath. And in the New Testament, there's 20 different words for God's wrath. But unlike a crazy dictator, God's wrath is always rational. It's always um, justified. It's always for good reasons. I just wanted to give you a sample of passages that explain this object of God's wrath. Romans 1 through 3, the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodly, and Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. John 3 says that the world is already condemned because of unbelief, and anyone who doesn't follow Jesus, the wrath of God remains on him. Um, And even King David, a man after God's own heart, says, surely I was a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So the truth of the Bible is that we're we're rebels against a holy God, against our Creator. We have rebelled against Him, and we, we, we deserve His just, just punishment because He's holy. So I think these truths here in this section are a, a service, the backdrop to the good news that we'll see uh, now. And I always think of one of the illustrations that Jeff Gilmore used once. He used to be the pastor at, uh, at Parkview for many years. He said, what do jewelers do when they lay out uh, their jewels and show them to you? They put that black cloth, and then they put the jewels on, and that makes the jewels just shine. So the bad news, like we see here, is that black cloth. And we throw the jewels on there, and it makes it shine all the more brightly. And so when we see this next section, the diamond is shining very brightly. So the first section is we were spiritually dead. The second is, but God made us alive in Christ. I just want to read those verses for you. Four through seven. So if you go to verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we see these great words in verse 4. This is a turn of events, but God. So this is God acting, doing something for us. Verse 3, 1 through 3, kind of left us hanging, no subject. But now we see the subject. God is the subject. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. We were objects of God's wrath, but God. So if you have your journals, make a nice, box, maybe a little bit less thick, I don't know, if you want to do thicker, thick, just as thick, as made us alive, but a thick box around, but God. The ESV study Bible says, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, but God, right? And why did God act? We see he's rich in mercy, and he's abounding in love. Romans 5.8 says the same thing, but God demonstrates or shows, or displays his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So it's an abundant mercy, a great love, that Christ died for sinners. And the text says, made us alive together with Christ. So made alive. This means brought to life, resurrected, regenerated from death to life. Other parts of the Bible uses new birth, or new life, new creation, being born again. That's what it means. Um, one of my favorite passages is Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. This is one of my favorite passages about this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so what we hear, see here is made alive means heart surgery, right? Those zombies need a new heart to pump that new spiritual blood into their system. And God performs this heart surgery. So the heart of stone, lifelessness, then has been replaced with the heart of life so we can walk with God. And it's all God's work, right? It's given us the spirit and moved us to obey the next phrase says it's all together with Christ, together with Christ. So remember Josh said that in Ephesians there's at least 30 times where we see identity in Christ, with Christ, in Christ. And it's very strong in this passage. All these benefits are because we are together in Christ, with Christ. Like like uh, branches to a vine, right? And then if you look a little bit uh, going on the text there, he uses two words to describe this made alive. So you can put an underline under raised us up and put an underline under seated us. So raised us and seated us explain, right? Or modify, explain, maybe a better word, made us alive. So raised us up is co-resurrection with Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead, and we also in him are raised from the dead. We're resurrected spiritually. Seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is co-exaltation, co 
enthronement. So those are big words, but there you go. Co-exaltation, co-enthronement. Christ has been exalted to God's right hand in power and glory and authority. Ephesians 1 says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And because we're in him, we're his body, right? We're the church. And so, in a sense, in some measure, we share in that power and authority. So Paul, I think Paul is saying to the Ephesians and to us, I know that there's a spiritual battle going on, but you're on the winning side. Jesus has been raised to glory, and you also share in some measure in that power and authority. You are in and with Christ Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Isn't that good news? It's amazing. So when is this going to happen? It says, if you look, in the coming ages, in the coming ages. So ages means successive periods of time, ages upon ages, and coming means in the future. So I use the phrase to describe this forever and ever, you know, forever and ever. God's ultimate purpose in saving a people for himself was to display his grace to all, for all to see forever and ever. That's what one commentator says. And these are immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. What a great word. It means extraordinary, surpassing riches, wealthy riches of his grace and kindness. And I looked up the New Living Translation and I think this brings it out well. This was done for us so that God can point to us in the future, all ages, and ex- as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with him, right? So wow, you know, every, in the future, everyone will say, wow, look at that. Those were undeserved people that God showed immeasurable kindness to. Amazing. So God makes us alive in Christ, and the question is, why? And my answer is to show off, to to display his riches, his filthy riches in Christ forever and ever. So in a little while, we're going to sing the song, Death Was Arrested, which is a great song. And when we sing it, think about these truths and how it relates to the song, and just praise God. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope, with no place to begin. So we're spiritually dead, and we need God to make us alive. As we put our faith in him, your love made a way to let mercy come in, both those things. Love and mercy are in this passage. When death was arrested and my life began, Your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. You've made me new, regenerated me, given me new life. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now life begins in you. I love when the songs work well with what we're talking about in the sermon. So we were spiritually dead, right? And then now we're made alive. And then thirdly, the third truth, now we walk in good works. That's verses 8 through 10. So read along with me real quick. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So these verses are talking about the nature of salvation by grace, grace through faith, and then the fruit of salvation. We walk in good works. So the phrase, by grace you have been saved, and this is actually repeated if you see from verse 5, which is kind of a side note, but now it's for emphasis. This is all God's doing. It's amazing grace, not a result of our good deeds. Been saved, right, is, a, is also a state of being, a status or an identity. And the question is, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? Well, we talked about that a little bit earlier. We're saved from eternal punishment, eternal death from our loving Creator. And how are we saved? And my answer is, by the blood of Jesus, we're saved. Romans 5, 9 says, Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we're justified, we're made right by God through the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice. And the result is we're saved from the wrath of God. So the same promise, right, in, in our passage. Jesus sacrificed himself for us, paid our penalty, took on the wrath of God so that we could be saved. And then grace, by grace. This is active grace by God, right? It's being shown favor, it's being shown goodwill. Uh, just amazing. To those that don't deserve it. And it's through faith, through faith. So this word means a, a trust, right? A confidence in something, a firm commitment in someone on the basis of the reliability of the person. So in other words, it's a trust, it's a belief, it's a confident trust in Christ. So grace, Paul says, is received through faith. So faith is the instrument or the means Right? And Paul described this in chapter 1. You heard the word of truth. This is talking about the Ephesians. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So heard the word of truth, the gospel, and then believe. Romans 3.22 says, The righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. So we're saved by grace through faith. And then we have three phrases that talks about sort of the salvation process. The first is, this is not your own doing. So it's not from you. It's a gift of God. It's God's present to us. We receive the present. We don't pay for a present. We receive the present. And it's not a result of works so that no one may boast, it says. So it can't be earned, so we don't brag about it. So I think Paul's point in all this is that you know, none of the salvation process originates with us, but it's rather a gift. So faith is not earned, it's a gift. Grace is not earned, it's a gift. Being seated, being raised, they're not earned, they're gifts. And being made alive certainly 
is a gift, not earned. And then the final verse, verse 10, um, this is just a wonderful verse to meditate on. For we are his workmanship. We're created unique. So we actually see three truths in this verse. We're created unique. Um, We're created for a purpose. And we're created according to plan. So have you ever looked at the idea of workmanship, what that word means for you, for, for others? It means to be created. Um, it's kind of a unique word, fairly rare. It means we are God's design. And it could mean simply creation. But in other places in literature, it has the idea of uh, a design by a designer. So craftsmanship, such as a potter who makes a jar or a writer who writes a book or writes a poem. In fact, in the original uh, language, it's pronounced poema. What word do you think that is in English or sounds like in English? Poem, right? Poem. So crafting a poem a workmanship of a skillful poet. That's what we're our God's poems. So some people have translated it masterpiece or handiwork or work of art. So we're new creations, God's unique handiwork. And this has huge implications. Just think about that, about how you view yourself, right? And how we view others around us. And we're also created for a purpose, So the phrase is created in Christ Jesus for good works. So that's a purpose statement. So we're born anew, we're recreated, and what what do we do? We're created for good works. And what are these good works? My definition is a lifestyle of godly behavior. So a lifestyle of godly behavior. So works we walk in, right? That's a lifestyle. We walk in these good works. And it's godly behavior. It's reflecting the actions, the character of our God. And what are the aspects of this godly behavior? What are the details? I don't see it much in this passage, but stay tuned. In chapters 4 through 6, we'll learn a ton about this. So stay tuned. You'll just have to come back to more sermons. (laughs) Verse 10 explains that we are also created according to God's plan. The phrase is, which God prepared beforehand. So this phrase, prepared beforehand, means to make ready in advance. So God made ready in advance these wonderful good works for us to do. This is similar to Ephesians 1.11. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, including those good works that we walk in. He's prepared those beforehand. So he's made ready, before eternity, this godly lifestyle for us to walk in and do. I think this is amazing. Our loving God does this. Such planning, such sovereign grace. He's got great things for us to do, right? And my question is, how does this work exactly? And I don't know if I have the greatest answer, but... I mean, does God, like, before time began, write this list for us, and then, you know, it's our job as sort of these detectives to figure out what this list is and then go do them? 
Um, I don't think that's how God works. Because remember, we're, we're talking about walking, a lifestyle. So the Christian life is a walk, a trust with him. Each day, we're walking with him in these good works. It's steps of trust each day, steps of faith in the Spirit. He's going to help us walk. So we trust God to work in and through us as we go out and do these good works, as we model his godly behavior. These are his plans for us as we walk in them. And these plans are always good. So I think the emphasis of this passage is on God's gift to us. It's on his amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The meaning of the phrase is kind of hard to figure out, I think, but I think it should motivate us. It should amaze us. It should uh, move us to live in the, in the works that God has prepared for us. So the last phrase of the passage is to walk in them. And again, we're talking about this lifestyle, this walk. It's a slow and steady pace of walking with our Savior each day. So walking in these good works are, not the, re- are, the, are the result of our salvation. Like we've been talking about the fruit. So the good works are not the root they are the fruit. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the vine, the source. You're the branches. You go out and bear the fruit. So a great verse uh, for this that talks about it and just kind of reinforces all of it is Titus 3. It says that he saved us not because of righteous things we have done. And then later says, but we need to be careful to devote ourselves to do what is good. And so it's a concert between God's grace and, and salvation and our works. Do we actively put our faith in Christ? You know, absolutely. We express that active faith in Christ. Are we active in doing these good works? Absolutely. We have to decide every day to walk in them. It's a concert between what we do and what God has already done in us. Well, we've seen some awesome truths. I just want to ask a few questions so that we can apply these things to our life. So I have three questions to to help us. How can we apply this passage to our life? The first is, will will we receive this gift? Will we receive this gift? Have you received the gift of salvation? Right? Now, many of us have in this room, and it's amazing. But if you have not, consider the passage and what it says. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Put your faith and hope and trust in him alone to save you, and then you'll be given that great purpose we've been talked about, we're talking about. The second application I have is, will we embrace this identity Will we embrace this identity? How are your thoughts about yourself? Do they reflect the truths of this passage? So many of us are really bombarded by uh, thoughts of untruth. I'm worthless is one. I'm a failure. I don't live up. I'm ugly. I'm unlovely. How can we combat these truths? 
any of those ring, just ring true in your mind? If so, what can you think on that is opposite of that? Because those aren't truths of God. So one thing you can do that I've done before, which is really cool, I, we went through Ephesians in one of my young adult groups and pulled out all of our identity in Christ that we see. And so you can do it in this passage or in all Ephesians or just kind of make a running list uh, as we go through the sermons. But underline all those places where it says with him, in him, with Christ, in Christ. Those are identity statements. Link those with what it says about who we are. So for example, in this passage, we are God's workmanship. We're his handiwork. So what does that mean about me and my identity? So then the third application question I have is, will we live out this faith? So will we live out this faith? What may be some specific good works that God wants you to walk in? It's a little bit of a mystery, but what could they be, and how might you do them? I think there's some clues for us, and one is, ask yourself, what is on your heart? What is on your heart? What has God placed on your heart? You know, maybe it's a, a cause, poverty. Maybe it's a, um, a group of people, children, um, or the needy, or even a people group in the world. What, what is that, that heart that God has given you? And then think about what might be those good works you can walk in to connect with that heart. Another clue, I think, is what are your gifts or gift? What's your spiritual gift? So you may have a spiritual, a spiritual gift of mercy. You may have a spiritual gift of encouragement. You may have a spiritual gift of serving. What is your spiritual gift? And then how can you connect that with the good works that you're going to do? This could be a clue of what God wants us to do in these good works. Um, so, example, for example, in, in my life, my heart is leadership development. Leadership development in the church. I did my doctorate on that, so I think it's my heart. <laughs> and then um, discipleship. And then my, uh, my gift is teaching and preaching. And so, in the future, I should continually ask myself, where can I jump in to teach and preach? Where can I jump in to invest in leaders? Does that make sense? This could be good gifts for us to walk in. Or you can ask this general question, how can you walk in greater godly behavior? That's what we've been talking about. How can you walk in greater godly behavior this week? So let's be a church that not only believes in this gospel, right, but also lives it out day to day in our lifestyles. So to end, I just want to talk about a few phrases in the message translation, and it really captures well what God has done for us, for spiritual zombies like us. And listen to these words. Saving is God's idea, all his work. All we do is trust him, enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role 
If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we've done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us in Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he does. The good works he's already gotten ready for us to do. Work we'd better be doing. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truths of this passage. We thank you that you, in Christ, make people who are undeserved alive. We thank you for your heart to save. We praise you for all the good works that, that we're to do. We thank you that they're based on that wonderful salvation, the gift of grace. We pray as we go from here and worship you and continue with our worship service, uh, we pray that you would instill these truths in our hearts and in our minds. Give us wisdom on how to understand it better and how to apply it better to our lives. And we thank you for the preciousness of your word, that it's living and active, and that we can treasure it and do it, and all your promises will endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.